Welcome to Lockdown the Legacy, stories from the inside out. I'm your host, Remy Jones. And I am co-host, Debbie Jones. We're a husband and wife team here to bring you the real-life stories, experiences, and questions around the American criminal justice system. We do advise discretion with this podcast. I think we should put that out there first and foremost. Yes. We are going to talk about experiences that happen inside the prison system, outside of prison systems. Uh, We will use language that might be offensive, but we intend to keep it real. And if that's not for you, we totally understand. But please do what's best for your listening ears. (laughs) Oh, we about to keep it real, son. (laughs) Our goal of this podcast is to share the inside realities of the American prison and criminal justice system from pre-charges all the way to post-release from the voices of those who've experienced it firsthand, including me. That's right. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Lockdown the Legacy. I'm your host, Remy Jones. And I am co-host, Debbie Jones. Thanks, Debbie. Um, I just wanted to first stop and say I appreciate you so much for doing this with me. Um, I think you're a real asset to the show. You bring such great insight. And not to mention how beautiful you are to look at while we're working. People can't see that. That's all right. They don't need to. I do. So as long (laughs) as they know that I feel good doing this, everything's good. So um, in recent news, you know, because that's how we like to start it out. Mm -hmm. I am no longer in training at work. I've graduated and am now a certified fuel hauler. Hooray. Right. Uh, I just did like what? Four days? Uh, my first week out of training and, uh, it's been great so far, man. Haven't had any catastrophic failures, uh, nothing caught on fire and I didn't put anything where it was not supposed to be. So I'm counting that as a win. And those are just two general good rules for life. Don't yeah, catch anything sure. on pi- fire and don't put things where they're not supposed to be. Yeah. 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 But I know that, um, you know, I got a lot of people watching me, uh, I am probably one of the very few people who trained under almost every trainer we have there. <laughs> um, and so on the leading up to my test drive, my uh, certification ride, everybody knew when it was. You know, everybody was like, yo, I heard your day's coming up, man. Good luck. You got it. You know? No pressure. No pressure at all. And then, you know, my boss, even though I'm not even certified yet, was like, yo, we got to go get you these credentials for this place and this place. And I'm like, yo, I can't even do that yet. She's like, don't worry about it. Just come see me after your shift. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's going well. I'm liking it still. Um, and it's such a hustle that I'm losing weight. So great. <laughs> uh, but other than that, man, you know, life is life and kids are kids and um, <laughs> I started a new semester. Yeah. I ended one, four days off, start a new one. So DJ's blowing through this school thing, man. She's so talented and smart. I got to <laughs> give her props. Um, if I could do one of those like cheesy radio claps, I would and give her a round of applause <laughs> because I mean, she is blowing through this thing that usually takes people about seven years or so, seven to 10 
sounds like a prison sentence, but anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's blowing through it, man, um, and doing it in such spectacular fashion. Uh, I believe you. What you finished this semester with all A's? Yeah, straight freaking A's, people, like freaking A. And all I can do is stand here and do golf claps. I'm appalled. No, it's not that kind of party. It is. It's not. I just want to. I just want to stand on a chair and say that's my baby, <laughs> like an old proud Southern mother. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> okay. That's all. Right. I am. I am. I'm taking my last two classes, which is very exciting for me. Um, doesn't mean I'm done. That means I'm halfway when I finish the classes part. Yep. So I'm taking my last two classes. I'll be done by June. Halfway, and it's only been exciting. two years, right? Yeah. My goodness, woman. Yeah, I start my um, third year. I don't know if that starts this semester or next. I don't know. But I'm, I'm headed into year three. That's all right. So All I know is I'm going to start calling you Doc from now on. Well, it's not happened yet. And then at your graduation, I'm singing Lil Wayne's song, Go DJ. Go DJ. That's my DJ. Go DJ. <laughs> You're not invited. Great. <laughs> I'll pick up golfing then. <laughs> golfing? Yeah. We do have a we have a course, you know, close by, so that's always a Oh no, those dudes are too dedicated, man. I'm not dedicated to anything in my life like that. There are some everydayers. They they rain or shine, they are out there. So that's that's commitment. Um but no, I think the kudos goes to you this episode for all the hard work you've put in for your certification. I'm sure it's a relief to be done. You're doing big things. Um I know that, you know, everybody's looking to you. So I'm just looking forward to the paychecks because <laughs> you don't earn bonuses until you're out of training. So I'm, you know, it's looking at I'm looking at my my first paycheck out of training and saying, <laughs> ah, I need to step it up or that's what's up. Who knows? We'll see. So what are we talking about today, babe? Uh, today, you know, I wanted to talk about something. This is kind of a heavy subject, man. So I'm sorry in advance, but I wanted to talk about dying in prison because everybody in life in general you know we always think that tomorrow is guaranteed you know and you know we talk about these horrible over sentencing practices um and you do something relatively you know i don't want to downplay it and say it's minor but you do something and your sentence doesn't quite fit the crime mm mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, we're talking about decades, you know, people get sentenced decades for, you know, responding to life in a not so stellar way and doing something wrong. And then they don't make it out the other side. Right. You know, and that's unfortunate. And it's also unfortunate that I have personally seen this happen. Um. I've seen people wrongly convicted die in prison. Uh, I've seen people who um, did relatively minor things, you know, as teenagers. I've seen a guy who um, was in there for stealing cars, and he died in prison after spending almost 15 years or so um, in prison. And 
I'm thinking to myself, this dude did over 15 years and died in prison for stealing cars. Like, that doesn't seem fair at all. Right. Um, but, I mean, it happens. And it's happened a lot more recently due to COVID. Uh, you know, there was the big rush to let everybody out. Mm-hmm. And we always ask that spectacular question of if you could let these thousands of people out within you know, a few weeks of making a decision mm-hmm. and you can make the decision pretty much overnight, then why were they in prison? Yeah, I think that um, we've we've cited the statistic before. This is a Washington Post article just in relation to that. Um, in terms of releases during the pandemic, uh, the CARES Act allowed the Justice Department to release 11,000 people from federal prison. So this isn't, you know, um, other state prison related. So 11,000 people went home from federal prisons during COVID and the Bureau of Prisons reported that only 17 of them committed new crimes uh, by 2022. So, I mean, that that's not a typo. 17 is the <laughs> correct number, which is a 0.15% recidivism rate. Uh, in a country where it's normal for 30 to 65% of people coming home uh, to reoffend within the first three years. So, I mean, 0.15% recidivism versus a 30 to 65% uh, within three years. It, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's It's kind of that's not what this episode is about, but I think it's important when we're talking about COVID to kind of recognize that they were able to make this decision on a dime. And because of that decision, many people are now home and living productive lives are not reoffending are not recommitting crimes um, or putting their probation, parole, whatever that looks like in jeopardy. They're, they're doing productive things, but that's not who we're focused on um, when, you know, the media gets involved or when we're talking about, criminals or uh, those kinds of things. That's not often the statistic that people like to talk about. So I want to make sure that we insert that when it's relevant and it's relevant here. So. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, we all know like COVID pretty much shut down the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there were some funny parts about it. There were some very not so funny parts about it. I mean, I heard like comedians talking about it where they're like, you know, they lost 50 pounds and people were like, what's your secret? And they're like, there is no secret. All the restaurants are closed, <laughs> you know? But, um, I mean, it really like brought the whole world to a halt. I mean, it, mm. it brought us to our mm-hmm. knees. And um, we always talked about, I mean, every single day, we talked about the numbers. The numbers are going up. The numbers are going down, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Ohio as far as the numbers go, um, we make up, according to the uh, CDC, we make up 3.6% of the U.S. population, and we only accounted for 1.9% of the nation's total COVID-19 deaths. Mm-hmm. But, of course, nobody's talking about incarcerated people, right? Um, when it came to incarcerated people, Ohio state prisons had COVID death rates 10 times higher than the general population. Mm. Yeah. Incarcerated Ohioans made up nearly 13 
0.7% of the nation's total prison deaths. And that's according to a Marshall Project study done in 2020. So here we are. We're talking about, oh, man, everything's back to normal. Everything's great. Our numbers are down. And we're, you know, we're less than the national average, but we're obviously neglecting people who have no power to do anything for themselves when it comes to isolation, when it comes to treatment, when it comes to, you know, anything that could, you know, help their chances with COVID. You know, they weren't issuing proper medical supplies. There was no masks. There was hard to come by, you know, um, uh, what's it? The sanitizing hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer. Yeah. All this stuff was like, you know, people in prison aren't a priority. We're not giving that stuff to them. And so they suffered, and they suffered greatly. Yeah, it led to a really large increase. Uh, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about just general death in prison uh, and kind of what those statistics look like and, and what those leading causes of deaths are. But in 2020, um, the U.S. estimates that 6,182 people died in U.S. prisons, which is a 46% increase from, 20, uh, from 2019. So that's huge. Um, and largely because, as we've talked about in, in this podcast, um, the lack of access to health care, the lack of access to cleanliness or hygiene or showers or uh, any of these other things that are human rights um, are just non-existent in incarceration. And nobody, like uh, Remy said, is kind of talking about how this is impactful. And, you know, we're in this place with post-pandemic, quote-unquote, that we're kind of seeing long COVID symptoms. I see articles all the time on my news apps come up about, you know, the experiences of long COVID or, or things that people in general population are experiencing because of um, COVID that they contracted in 2020 or that they're still experiencing. Um, but nobody's talking about if if incarcerated folks are having any long COVID symptoms or if right. those are any more severe because of the lack of access to hygiene products or hand sanitizer or, or those kinds of things. So I think that that would be a very interesting question to ask. And I don't know that the Department of Justice would have any answers. I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it, though. Um, I mean, like speaking of like the long-term symptoms of COVID. Like, I believe I had COVID. I never had it during, you know, the trending phase of it. But back in 2019, I remember I got real sick. Um, and I'm not the type to go to the doctor. Like, I'm like, shit, dug it out, right? <laughs> um, so I got sick, like, halfway through my work, work week. And I just kept going to work. I mean, I was a truck driver. I was out on the road. And I was like, whatever. When I go home, I'll rest. And um, when I got, by the time I got home, and I was so sick, like I was in like two sweatsuits and three blankets, you know, and just shaking violently, shivering, you know. And I finally went to the doctor, and they were like, "Yeah, nothing's wrong with you." <laughs> I mean, I'm like literally sitting there, like trying to, you know, just trying to breathe. I was spitting up these huge phlegm balls, and I was like. Like, TMI, babe. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, like pe people, <laughs> people know what it's like, but you know, like. I would like walk up like four stairs and be like out of breath. You know, I was real messed up and I went to the doctor maybe five times and they're just like, 
there's, you know, it's not the flu. It's not strep throat because I did have like these lesions or whatever on my tonsils. And they're like, it's not this. And it's, they test me for mono and they test me for all these other things. And then basically by the time I went there for the fifth time, they were like, all right, we're going to start testing you for STDs because <laughs> we're out of, we're out of ideas. And, um, like it was horrible, but you know, I lost my taste. I lost my smell. That was 2019. And I would say maybe last year I just got over the like walking up the stairs and being out of breath thing, which is weird because I ran, you know, and when I ran, I was totally fine. But at a resting pace, just walking up the stairs, I would mm -hmm. get out of breath. And I'm like, man, this is like weird. So I can imagine if that lasted, you know, those complications lasted three years. Um, I can't imagine being in prison still going to the doctor like, hey, listen, something's wrong with me, <laughs> you know, because if the doctors out here can't do anything for me, then mm -hmm. the doctors in there are like, you know, fuck you want from us. Because I, I mean, I told you guys before, it costs $2 as a copay to go to the medical, but nine times out of 10, they're not even going to look you in the eye and they're going to tell you to go buy some prescription, I mean, over-the-counter stuff from commissary, which is like, you know, $10 ibuprofen, which I can't afford. <laughs> this might be a good time. I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, um, but you have a close friend who's going through some heart stuff and is experiencing a lot of exactly what you're talking about of, hey, this isn't right. What I'm experiencing isn't normal. Like going through a and a heart attack and not being able to go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, having a heart attack and going to medical and them telling you that there's nothing they can do for you. Um, and you basically, like I said, like you have to put everything on the line and almost threaten them with violence or legal action for somebody to say, okay, it must be serious. Let's take a look at you. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, he's been back several times to, even be seen and is asking for things like nitrate uh, nitrate pills is that right nitrate yeah, nit nit nitrites i don't know. know whatever i'm sure people know who are listening <laughs> yeah he has to take the nitrite nitrate pills or whatever yeah. to and, um kind of keep his heart going but to get those in the first place he had to go like several times actually experiencing cardiac arrest <laughs> yes he had um, I think he said two or three heart attacks before they actually gave him stuff, you know, because in prison, it's all, you know, security. We can't give you this medication. You can't have it in your possession. But tell me what good are these pills where it's time sensitive? I'm having heart issues and I should be able to pop it out of my pocket and put it in my mouth. But instead, I have to go find somebody who gives a fuck mm -hmm. and say, hey, I need you to get the nurse down here. Because I'm having a heart attack. Right. And if that's the level of advocacy somebody has to do when experiencing a heart attack to get any treatment, as we can imagine, COVID-19 was a completely different animal. And of course, a lot of people were neglected and um, not cared for during that time. Now, part of that, you sure we can attribute to, well, nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew how to treat it at first. And nobody, you know, we didn't have a vaccine. You could, you can say all of those things and all of those things are true, but two things can be true at the same time and <laughs> that right. people didn't know what to do and people weren't getting the care that they needed while incarcerated because of uh, COVID symptoms. It was just like, eh, 
everybody's got it. So why should we intervene here as yeah. people were falling all over the floors? I mean, I, I'm actually glad that you said that because I don't want people to think this is one sided. Um, there are a lot of things at play. I mean, COVID scared the bejesus out of us, right? All of us. So, I mean, uh, globally, if like, you look at it from the staffing point of view, you I mean, we're still experiencing those hardships of where we can't get anything. Everything's on back order because of staffing issues, because of, you know, it causes problems in all types of areas of supply chain and everything. Same thing goes for prisons, right? Like, it's scary as hell to go into a Petri dish because prisons are closed off. They're very uh, tight, you know? There's no space. So even as a CO, like, you're like, I don't want to go in there. People were quitting their jobs. Like, mm -hmm. you're not sending me in there. You know? And um, I actually just watched, well, first, before I tell you this, um, when it comes to Ohio, you know, it's very hard to spread out because Ohio prisons are very, very overpopulated. So I found a statistic that says that currently our prisons as a whole, as a state, uh, are housing about 9,000 people more than the maximum occupancies. Yep. Yeah. Dangerously so. overcrowded and have been for some time. It's This isn't a new phenomenon. Um, we, we've talked, I mean, you can go back and listen to the private prisons episode to hear some more about reasons for overcrowding in terms of um, capital gains and monetary things. That's a good episode to kind of go back to if you want a more historic overview of why prisons are overcrowded. But I mean, we can summarize and say the bottom line is always the dollar. So, yes. yeah. I mean, so in um, 2010, no, yeah, 2010, I was in Toledo, Toledo Correctional Institution, and um, Toledo was meant to be a single man sale prison. It was built as a maximum security, but the, the neighborhoods around it wouldn't allow it. So they kind of lowered the security level of it um, for like, a predetermined amount of time, whatever. Anyway, once that time expired, they chose, hey, instead of making this a maximum security prison, let's double the population of mm -hmm. it. So this prison, which the windows don't open and there's only like two telephones per block and there's only six showers per block and the blocks usually um, hold 45 people, now hold 90 people with six showers, two telephones, and three washing machines, you know? And so shit got real violent real quick, and mm -hmm. I saw some people die in there, um, and that was unfortunate. But once I got um, to a dorm style, I remember them coming and saying, hey, we're going to move all the beds closer so we could fit more beds in on the end. And we're like, bro, we already don't have space. There was really just enough space to fit a locker box between the beds. That was crazy. Um, now, back to what I was saying. Um, while doing a little research for this uh, episode, I came across a video, which I didn't think I was going to include uh, or refer to. So I don't really have any real information on it, except for you can probably Google it. Um, but there was a Georgia inmate who made a recording, a video recording, of the fact that there was no CO that came through the block for hours 
to check on the inmates. And there was literally an inmate dead hanging over the railing on the second tier. And the other inmates were complaining that he had been there dead for hours and they couldn't get anybody to come help. So when we're talking about staffing issues and we're talking about, you know, I guess you just cut corners and say, fuck it. Cause I mean, what can you do if you don't have people to work? Um, in this case, the inmates weren't even locked down. You know, when I was in the County, you didn't have any work. They just locked you down. But these inmates were apparently out and free. And I mean, dude's just dead. Dude's just dead. Slumped over the railing. Yikes. You know, um, Ooh, this might be a fun fact for folks who aren't uh, more familiar with prison environments. You might be wondering how could an incarcerated person record a video. Um, <laughs> there are lots of ways that can happen. We've talked about how tablets are kind of a COVID piece now, and and now post COVID, um, most incarcerated folks have access to tablets. Um, but pre that, cell phones are attainable in prison. They aren't legal, but they are attainable if you know the right people and have the right uh, fare to pay. So Yeah. Uh, the tablets don't have cameras on them. So Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. I didn't know that. The tablets are very secure. It's a closed network. That makes sense. Um, you can't get on the internet on them. It's very secure and monitored. That, um, that that video, I, I don't want to watch it. You you were right to not tell me that that was a thing. I'm sure that you thought about that when you watched it, that you couldn't show it to me. No, I didn't want to show it to you. Uh, but that just sounds... But yeah, cell phones so unfortunate. are pretty, I won't say they're common, but they're common knowledge that they're there in prison. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my 10 years in prison, I probably had five cell phones. Um, and, you know, you get them however you get them, right? You get them. <laughs> I'd say out of those five cell phones, I think three I got from staff. So there's that. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Make of that what you will. Um. Yeah, I was going to, I don't know, I was going to talk a little bit about general death in prison kind of things. Is, is, that a, is this a good place to do that? Sure. Um, I think that there's a misconception that prison is just violent. And I know that we're talking about overcrowding. And of course, overcrowding makes it a more violent environment, right? We've got more gang issues. We've got more race issues. We've got more um lots of things that can contribute to that. But there's this misconception that violence is the leading cause of death in prison, and it's not. Um, actually, the leading cause of death in prison is suicide. Correct. Yeah, I'm sure that's not a surprising statistic to you. Mm, no. I mean, leading cause may be a little surprising, but... It's... Leading by almost double. It's, like it's very common. It, it's 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 leading by um, a significant amount all the way since uh, I mean the early two thousands when this this kind of study took place again from the prison policy initiative. Maybe they'll start listening and, and pay us for all the shout outs yeah, we man. give them. But they just <clears throat> they do such really great work uh, that it's hard to not. Uh, it's hard to go other places, right? Because I, I know that they've done their due diligence in putting these policy briefs together. But suicide has always been the leading cause in um, prison deaths. 
And I think that that's a misconception that it would be homicide or other forms of violence. Um, Drugs have gotten up there a lot since 2016, starting to catch the suicide rate, but suicides have just continuously increased. Well, I'm sure people think that, you know, the media shows us that prison is just this constant violent place where, you know, you can get offed in an instant. But, um, yeah, man, I mean... The biggest thing is trying to cope with the time you have to do, especially if you are innocent or something like that. But when it comes to suicide, Mm -hmm. um, the majority of suicides happen in solitary confinement. So if you've listened to that episode, um, you can get a lot more information about that. How often did you encounter folks or um, whether they're friends, acquaintances or whatever in your time in prison that were struggling with mental health, like depression or anxiety or those kinds of things, particularly around the circumstances that they were in? Uh, Daily. Um, I don't think that there was ever a time where I didn't come across those people. Um, And, you know, most of them, well, I wouldn't say most of them, some of them were smart enough to seek out mental health services, which were very limited, but um, when it came to mental health, man, it was kind of uh, a double-edged sword, you know, mm. because there are a lot of people in there that just don't want to deal with the the reality of doing time. And so they go to mental health just so they can get on the caseload and get medication that will gotcha. dull the experience, that'll help them just sleep the experience away mm. and stuff like that. So those inmates are very common, the ones that abuse the system. Now, for those who actually do need it, uh, need help, they are kind of torn because, like I said, if you go to medical, even mental health, and you say, hey, I have this issue, they're either going to blow you off or they're going to put you on the same stuff that everybody else is trying to get because they feel like you're just trying to get meds. Mm-hmm. And they're not actually going to pay attention to what your issue actually is and what you need to actually treat it. So, um, and once you get on the mental health caseload in prison, it's kind of like something that follows you around wherever you go. You know, mm. it's like, it's not one of those things like, oh, I've been treated and I'm better and I've gotten through this experience in my life and now I'm okay. It's like one of those things It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, that's you. That's what you're tagged as. And everywhere you go, it's going to follow you. So a more amplified stigma than mental health gets in general population. Yes. Got it. And then it even affects you when you go home, of course, because, like, this is, I don't know, it's it's kind of messed up. Um, a lot of guys in there, unfortunately, they just, some do it so that they can get, like, SSI when they come home. Like, it's a whole racket. But whatever. Um, I kind of feel bad for the people that actually need help and who don't want to be totally sedated and be a zombie in prison, but just need help getting through it. Mm -hmm. That's probably why the suicide rates are so high. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and as a person with a anxiety disorder, you know, I, I can recognize the difficulty in kind of making that choice. I mean, you don't want to just be going through the daily motions and get rid of your entire personality, right? Um, But you got to have something to take the edge off or be able to move through the world in a way that 
you feel productive and can feel good about and not anxious or, you know, crippled about in, in that capacity. So I, I can imagine that being incarcerated adds like five new levels to that uh, kind of mentality. So while I wasn't surprised, I, I think to kind of come across those numbers and, and doing some research for this episode, it's also just like a, a sobering reminder that prison is not just what the media presents. Uh, it's not just this violent place. It's where these people are are struggling with mental health issues um, and that that's contributing more so to the overall deaths in prison. So, yeah, it's kind of um, it's really kind of messed up. Right. So in prison, you don't really know you're sick until you're like fucked up sick. Mm. And that's bad mm-hmm. because I remember I was um, probably like 25, 26 and I asked them for a physical and they told me no, because I'm not over 45. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'll pay for it. No, no, we don't do that. Hmm. You know? And um, I think about one of my friends, man. Um, I I might have talked about him before where, like, this dude was, like, the fittest guy I knew and died, you know? Like, we were going to work out, and he was like, nah, I'm not going to go today, man. I, I, I've just been kind of feeling off, man. Like, I'm not, I'm not really feeling good. I'm going to take a week off of working out. And, um, you know, he came back, and he worked out, and he was like, nah, I still feel a little off, man. And he went to medical, and they were like, nah, nothing wrong. And then he, you know, went back to medical a couple of days later, and uh, he was, like, persistent about it. And they were like, all right, well, let's take a look at you. And next thing you know, they took him out to OSU, and he never came back. They took him to the hospital. Uh, they had to do some emergency surgery. He never made it back. I'm sure that that, I mean, seeing that as a friend, right, causes a lot of concern about, is that going to be me? I mean, I know for you, you I don't want to say only had 10 years because that's a, it's so much, it's such a long time. Um, but I think about folks like Warren who have been there for, three decades now. Um, I I can't imagine the amount of concern that that has to cause every year that you get older and are still incarcerated about if that's going to be your story that somebody tells someday about how you went to the hospital and didn't come back and, and, you know, lived your entire life in prison. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty messed up. I mean, he, he had been there since he was a teenager, too. Um, and he never made it home. The sad part is his brother was in there too. So his brother actually, you know, was in a whole different housing unit and had to get that news from another inmate <laughs> and then had to go up to the captain's oh. office. And then, you know, it was crazy. Um, but it's, it's not uncommon. It's unfortunately not uncommon. I mean, when they doubled Toledo's population, um, I had a friend who was killed on the softball field in there. You know, it it happens. And I don't want to downplay it and say, like, oh, it's just something that happens. Like, it happens, and it's real fucked up. Another messed up thing is um, there are some very interesting rules and laws in different states about what happens when you die in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, some states are like, uh, you 
you're he's still our property until the sentence expires. That's pretty fucked up. What? <laughs> yeah, there are some states that do that. Um, there are some states that are like, you know, we will release the body to its next akin after any investigations or whatever. Um, but, I mean, if you were somebody who didn't keep in touch and you're not like on their visit list or listed as their next kin or anything, like they're not reaching out to you. You know, um, if you as a family member feel like there was some type of foul play, like you have a very small window to initiate an investigation before all the evidence is destroyed. Um, well, that's what I thought about when you said he's our, you know, this this person is our property until the sentence expires. I'm like, what does that cover up then, right? If the body can't be released to the family, you know, <laughs> what does that, that's my, that's my true crime documentary sleuth coming out. But uh, it feels protective, but of a facility and not so much. Yeah, nobody uh, cares about the individual. Right. So I actually have a friend um, who used to be a, a CEO. Um, he was a CEO before I ever met him. You know, we met in a whole different life. But once he found out that I was in prison and I found out he was a CEO, we would just sit here and trade stories and kind of compare them from the different points of view. Uh, he actually, interesting enough, said he stopped being a CEO because he realized he had more in common than, with the inmates than the CEOs. You know, uh, he was like, man, he's... These COs in here, they just like grow to like hate inmates and it's it's kind of contagious. You hang out with them and you find yourself hating inmates too. Um, he was like, but I related more with the inmates than the COs. So I kind of just like distance myself from them. But then they see you distance yourself and they like try to set you up to leave you in a bad situation. So he was like, I'm out of there. Um, but one of the interesting things that he said was that um, the prison – it was like an unspoken rule that nobody dies in prison. Hmm. So if you're dead, you could have been dead for two hours. They're going to call an ambulance and they're going to do CPR on you until you're out of the prison. And then they're going to call your death. Wow. Because when you die in prison, then there's an investigation. That's We don't want that. So I don't like that he at was all. Still, he was still alive when he left. Man, listen. <laughs> you know, that's it's real messed up, man. That's one of the very interesting things that I heard um, from a person who was actually on the job. So how about that? But yeah, anyway, um, it's kind of sad that um, you don't make it to the end of your sentence. You don't make it to see the other side of the fence again. And then after you're dead, sometimes you still can't go home. Right. <laughs> you know, like how fucked up is that? But, you know, it's, it's our system and it needs work and we're trying. And uh, COVID kind of, I mean, exacerbated all of this, right? Because it's, it's this, you know, you talked about overcrowding, but it also then means that people can't separate from others. And so if we think about how we all had to, you know, locked down in our homes. Uh, when we could go back out in public, it was six feet of distance. Always wear your mask. Get uh, vaccinated when the vaccine becomes available. Um, none of those options existed in incarcerated spaces. There is no separating from others or how can you stay six feet apart when your room's six feet big? Right. Um, 
there's there's no <laughs> we're going to just take these people who are infected or, or you know have tested positive and put them over here and that's going to save everybody else there there's not there is no coordination of that that didn't happen there there were some like stupid things like um the last few years of my sentence I was in a dorm you know dorm style prison which is basically 300 bunk beds in a warehouse with a um communal restroom in the middle of it um, you know, you share everything basically. I remember there being like some, you know, virus, stomach virus or whatever that was going around, man. It was going around like wildfire. And the first inmate that had it, they were just like, okay, um, we're going to put you on bed restriction. Like your bed is literally, you know, arm's length from another person's bed. <clears throat> and it was the most depressing shit I ever experienced. And I didn't even have it mm. because in the distance, you know, all I could hear was, you know, two rows over and five beds down, someone puking their whole life out, you it know, sounds horrible. And I'm sitting here trying to watch TV. I'm like, what the fuck is that? You hear the, and then you hear the the splatter on the ground. And I'm like, oh, shit. And they're going and going and going and then dry heaving. And I'm like, yo, somebody needs to come and help them. But nobody came, you know. And then, you know, a few days later, you see, like, you're just coming. I'm coming back from wreck, and I look in there because there's no doors on the bathroom. And you see somebody on their hands and knees with their face in the toilet. And mm -hmm. me, I was a real germaphobe. So the only thing I could think of was like, oh, my God, he's touching it. You know? <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, and then there was there was this guy who was the um, porter. You know, he was the guy that cleaned up all the time. Uh, and he literally shit himself from the CO's desk all the way to the bathroom. It just rolled right on down his pant leg because he couldn't hold it because, I mean, he had this bug. And, like, people were complaining to administration, like, yo, get me the fuck out of here. You know? <laughs> Nothing you could do. Like, people were trying to get bad moves, like, send me to the hole. Send me, like, there's a bed open three rows over. Like, get me away from this person. But there's nothing they could do. By the end of it, I would say about 80% of the block had contracted it. There is no separation because, yeah, that person's on bed restriction, right? But they still go and they use the microwave and they still go to the shower and the restroom. And then they go and say, oh, I can use the phone real quick, you know, and then not to mention that they're arm's length from another person. So right. whatever. So then, I mean, the if we're thinking about how contagious COVID was, yeah. uh, there's it's. It's wildfire. Uh, so there just was no stopping that. A and I thought this was an interesting point. You can speak to this better than I did because you told it to me um, about how there were no masks. So incarcerated individuals made their own. Yeah. So we, we talked about mush faking in one of the early episodes, you know, where guys in prison basically just make whatever out of whatever is available. And so guys were like cutting up old sweatshirts and, you know, making masks out of them or, you know, T-shirts or just whatever they could. And they were making these much fake masks, which are contraband. So 
if a CEO wanted to be an asshole, he could be like, hey, that's contraband. They could either take it or they could like put you in the hole, which I'm sure was already full because they were using the hole as a means to isolate sick mm-hmm. people. So, um, yeah, I mean, people were basically kind of like breaking the rules blatantly saying, man, fuck you. I got to protect myself however I can because you're not going to do it, you know. Um, and I mean, that's what it was. I ain't gonna lie. I seen some stylish masks, some stylish mush fake masks. Some of them were high quality. Some of them were just like whatever I can put over my face. Well, there's some talented folks in, in prison. So yeah, I'm sure that they worked really hard to kind of come up and problem solve against this. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, it often wasn't enough. So, um, you know, this episode, I, did you call? Did you talk about the other name for dying in prison? Uh, I did not. So uh, dying in prison, um, the slang term for it um, is it's called a backdoor parole. You know, it's um, what some people refer to as the easy way out of prison. I think that's debatable. It's debatable, <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, debatable, but. This episode, you know, we haven't gotten to touch on some of the other pieces of dying in prison that I think are important. Uh, I would love for you and Warren to get into this conversation and and kind of talk some more about both sides of seeing people die around you. But also, I'm curious, I don't know if listeners are or not, from the perspective of loved ones and what fear they have on a daily basis that they're not going to get a phone call from their loved one because something has happened. Like, I mean, that feels scary in and of itself. So there's more to talk about. There's always more to talk about, but I know that um, we're coming up on our time. So probably have to part two this one too. You and I just keep going, don't we? That's all right. Um, If I do part two it, I want to see if I can reach out to, um, my dude's brother, man, he's still actually locked up. I'm going to see if I can get a call with him and uh, see if he can talk about his brother dying in prison while he was in there, too. Yep. So, anyway, um, with that, we're going to call it. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Love you guys all. And uh, we'll holler at you guys next week. Bye. Peace. The Lockdown to Legacy podcast is proud to be a part of the Buzzsprout podcast community network. Lockdown to Legacy is recorded at Cohatch in their lovely audiophile room. Thanks for your scholarship. Audio engineering is done by our very own Remy Jones. You can reach us with any feedback, questions, comments, or share the love by emailing stories at lockdown, the number two, legacy.com, stories at lockdown to legacy.com. You can reach out there too for a free sticker and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at lockdown to legacy and on Facebook at the lockdown to legacy podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.